Dear Lord, thank you for the means of grace that you provide so that we might be sanctified, that we might find grace that would help us grow and change. Thank you for fellowship and prayer, the Word of God, and the Lord's Supper. And as we put ourselves under those and come in faith, Lord, may your great work of grace make evident changes in us. And we pray for the dear saints around the world who will also listen. May you bless them, help them find one another, help the remnant find the rest of the remnant that they can gather together and pray for one another and search the Scriptures together. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us encourage people to be seeking you and evangelizing and studying the Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, again, Second Corinthians 7, and we were studying verse 11, and the topic the last few weeks in this section is repentance. So we've been discussing repentance and what it means in the Bible, what it looks like. If you remember the first time we talked about this, I took us back into Jeremiah, and we studied a section of Jeremiah where we see the Old Testament roots of the idea of repentance. And we also talked about the fact that there are synonyms in the Bible for the term repentance, and one of the key synonyms is the word turn. Okay, repentance is turning. And as we said, just to set the stage, there's a passage in Thessalonians that I believe tells what repentance ultimately is in salvation when Paul said that you turned from idols to serve the living God. And in, in, I think it's valid to say that that's always what repentance is. Because every person in their unregenerate state is an idolater. All right? And the only way not to be an idolater is to come to God on his terms. Any, any further discussion on that? Are we in agreement? <laughs> because God deserves to be served on his terms. So anything less than that is idolatry. Uh, I, I'm having a struggle with that because if you don't worship any God like an atheist, how can you be an idolater? Okay, how can an atheist be an idolater? Well, the atheist idol is his own mind. He himself is an idol. He thinks he can stand in judgment of God and everybody's serving something or somebody in some way, whether they believe they are or not. <laughs> That's a astute observation. So I would say that atheist is an idolater, idolater of his own mind. So let's go on here now and look at some cross-references. We already studied verse 11 last week where it talks about now, in the case of the Corinthians, this repentance had to do with their relationship to Paul, their willingness to submit to his valid apostolic authority, and the fact that there was some serious issue going on that we aren't privy to because it was spelled out in the severe letter that's not extant, it's not in our Bible. Nobody has a copy of it, nobody knows what's in it other than the hints we get from reading between the lines in Second in Corinthians. So whatever the case, Titus, as we've laid the groundwork here several times, but I have to do it again because there's always new people, Titus 
had gone in person. Paul decided not to go. He decided that the, the situation between him and them was so touchy and so fragile that if he went, it might be just too much. So he decided not to go, which earlier in Corinthians he defended himself about because they were accusing him of being a vacillator. And he said, well, I may change my travel plans, but God doesn't change his yes is yes. <laughs> and you can count on God. And I admit I changed my travel plans, but my gospel doesn't change. So Paul had sent Titus rather than go in person. And he awaited Titus's word about whether they repented. And so Titus came back with news that they had received the severe letter, and rather than pushing them over the edge, as he was afraid it might do, it caused godly grief that leads to salvation. And they repented. Okay, so that was our background, and we talked about that the last couple times. Uh, passages to be read. Let's start, let's start in the second row. Sam, could you read 2 Samuel? Oh, wow. 15 verses? All right. There must be a, something in there that I wanted to emphasize. Let's all turn to 2 Samuel 12, 1 to 15. Oh, I know what it is. It's Nathan. Nathan and David. That is a, that's an interesting example of what repentance. 2 Samuel. Yes, yes, yes. Now I remember. I wanted to read that. I was a few weeks ago when I did my study for this and 2 Samuel 12 aha Nathan and David famous story of sin and repentance this, you know what happened if you don't I'll fill it in David had lusted after Bathsheba who was the wife of the Hittite Uriah the Hittite right and so here, and here, he, Uriah behaves wonderfully. He's so loyal to David, and he's so devoted. So here, uh, one of the evidences for the inspiration of the Scriptures is the fact that a lot of the heroes in the Bible are foreigners. You know, if the, if the Jewish authors of Scripture were just wanting to make themselves look good, they wouldn't make Uriah the hero and David the villain. So why, why is this in the Bible? Because it really happened. So the foreigner is the hero, the nobleman, and David is the scoundrel, and he arranges for uh, Uriah to die in battle by having everybody withdraw support from him, and he was a loyal soldier, so he could have Bathsheba. Now, the Lord sent a prophet to confront David about his sin. And that story is found in 2 Samuel 12, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And he grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. 
Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to his house. Now, let's stop right there. If you've been coming here, as I preach through Luke, doesn't this remind you of the midnight? In other words, remember I read that material about the hospitality in the Middle East and how it's been the same for thousands of years? That if somebody who shows up, this is an obligation. This, and so the guy that came at midnight asking for help and didn't get it, if you remember that sermon, I explained Mideastern hospitality. It also shows up here. So that the guy was obligated to take care of the traveler, but he had his own flock to do that. So this was an act of greed and, and a very bad thing, very, very wicked thing to do, according to Middle East customs. Okay, so, then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to David, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Wow. Imagine being David and realizing that the Lord wasn't going to let him get by with what he did. You are the man. Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to, the, to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I'll bring this thing before all Israel and his son. And then David said to Nathan, here's, here's the response we're looking for. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. And remember, the story goes on when David is pleading for this child, but the child dies anyhow. And then another sidebar to this story of repentance is Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David writes about his repentance from his own, what he called, blood guiltiness. David knew that he deserved to die. And he even pronounced his own sentence, unbeknowingly. And God mercifully took away David's sin, even though there were still some consequences. God is a very merciful God, and he'll take away our sins. Um, if we come to him according to his terms, and his terms is that only the blood of Jesus washes away sins. That little song is absolutely dead right. Wash, wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But sometimes we live on with consequences for, that are part of life because of what we did, as David did. And Christians uh, do have regrets about the profligate lives we may have lived before we became to Christ. 
We may have damaged families because of things that we did before we came to Christ. We may have various consequences. But you know, if our sins are taken away, all of these things are merely temporal. And God does a great work, and He gives us a family of God, and He gives us a way to live by grace with what we have now. And we may have regrets, and there may still be some things that aren't exactly the same as they would have been had I been serving God the way He wanted me to from a youth. But nevertheless, better to be the thief on the cross than to go through this life without any problems and be lost. Amen? So David was graciously brought to repentance. Now, in the case of the Corinthians, what happens here is God used Nathan to bring David to repentance. What God used for the Corinthians was Paul's severe letter. And his concern was that he just wrote something very strict, very harsh, whatever it was, called it severe, and said that you are in eternal danger. This is terrible. Your, your unwillingness to do church discipline in, this, in the case, whatever it was, was, was a huge problem. And the severity of the letter and then Titus' visit brought them to repentance so that they showed that they truly did believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church discipline is never something that's a joyous occasion. It's always grievous. And it's something that I think sometimes gets avoided wrongly because it isn't pleasant, but it's absolutely necessary. And we've had a couple of instances lately where we've had to do church discipline, and I'm telling you, it grieves me. And we don't want to ever see that. But it's better, Paul said, that it was absolutely necessary, otherwise the gospel itself is compromised. Okay? And so... That's what was going on here. Okay, so that, I'll give you a shorter version now, Sam. <laughs> Isaiah 66, 2, and then uh, Jeremy, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, Patrick, Hebrews 12, 15, and 16. Another interesting story in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is about Esau, I think. Okay, the first passage, Isaiah 66, 2, when you're ready. 66, 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came unto being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, yes. and who trembles at my word. Yes, the idea of trembling at God's word. And Paul's going to use the phrase here later in this chapter, fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. And that's connected to repentance. So the one in Isaiah... The God looks to is the one who trembles at his word. Now, the word does create trembling when it does the work that the Holy Spirit is sent to do, and the Holy Spirit works through the word. The Holy Spirit is sent to convict the world of sin concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And those are legal issues. Those are legal issues. So when the word does this work of conviction, and someone is sitting in a lost condition and maybe not knowing it, having false assurance, when the Word does this work, it creates trembling in the sense that you realize that God is who He said He is and that He's the just judge of the universe. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be conscious of this at some 
stage. There are people who are converted at a young age that can't remember. Okay? And, and I've talked before about conversion, and I, I don't want to give the idea that if you can't say, here's the moment that happened, that you're not saved. I'm not saying that. Because I've had people come and say, well, maybe I'm not saved. I don't remember the moment. But I said, but do you believe that Jesus Christ is truly who he said he is, that he died for your sins and that, he, that you're a sinner and you would deserve hell if it wasn't for the fact that Christ intervened and shed his blood for you? Oh, yeah. I said, you're a Christian. <laughs> if there's signs of conversion, if you have fruit, it obviously it doesn't matter that you have, remember an experience. Okay. But many do, and I'm one of them, because I was... I was hostile to Christianity. I wasn't just a neutral. I wasn't having false assurance. I was having a fit of rage against the disciples of the Lord. Okay? Like, like Saul. And I remember the moment when I trembled at God's word. I, all of a sudden, I, when the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin, righteousness, and judgment, I knew that God's word was true and I'd been mocking it. And that God is the just judge of the universe, and it would only be right if he sent me to hell. And I knew that he would if I didn't repent. All of that happened, what is this? Well, July 18th, my spiritual birthday, 1971. That's when that happened. Now, when it says that God is, looks to the one who is contrite, or the one who trembles at his word, it's in contrast to those who don't. And if you remember, for example, the uh, history of the prophet Jeremiah, that was the thing that was so frustrating to Jeremiah was that nobody that he, that he preached to ever trembled at God's word. He'd announce the truth and they just wouldn't listen to him. And they'd get other prophets to tell them what they wanted to hear. And, and so it was a, that was a frustrating thing. Now, Isaiah, I think I know another verse. Isaiah 57, 12. If I'm right. Ah, it's 15. Isaiah 57, 15. Here is a verse. I want to talk a little bit about transcendence and imminence in this verse. I've seen some, some people have been writing about some of the false stuff out there and warning about false imminence, and that's right to do. But I, I've seen a few people that they don't understand theology, and they're claiming that if you have any kind of imminence, that that's false. But you can look at just about any bona fide systematic theology, whether it's Hodge or Burkhoff or Millard Erickson, um, and they, all of these theologies will say that the Christian doctrine is that God is transcended in one sense and imminent in another. If you have transcendence only, in fact, I remember we had a continuum we looked at when we studied this in theology. If you have nothing but transcendence, you're basically an agnostic. If God is so transcendent that you can't even know him, there's maybe a God out there, but it's not possible for us to know him. Because he has never come near to anybody. Come near means what imminence means. Well, then you'd be an agnostic if all you had is transcendence. Now, along that, so that would be clear out here on this continuum. Next to that is Islam. Islam has transcendence without imminence. In the, in the sense that Islam doesn't even have a God that loves anybody. 
I was listening to this guy named Solomon out at that think tank, and he says there's no concept of God loving anybody in Islam. God is just a dire threat to do some terrible thing to you, and you just have to live in fear and submission. But the Christian doctrine is that God became incarnate and drew near to man in the person of Christ. Okay? Now... We want, to, uh, we want to avoid panentheism, which is what the emergent church teaches. God is in everything. That is too much imminence, not enough transcendence. And then you have pantheism, which makes no distinction between the creature and the creator. All God is just everything. It's pantheism. So what is the Christian doctrine? Well, one of the best expressions of it is Isaiah 50. 7.15, where right there it expresses both transcendence and imminence in one verse. Okay, here's what it says. For thus says the high and exalted one, that's our transcendent God, who lives forever, whose name is holy, that means he's separate from his creatures, he's separate from sin, he's not the creation, he created the world out of nothing. I dwell in a high and holy place, there's transcendence. But read on. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. So God, the holy transcendent God, will come and dwell with repentant sinners. So he's imminent in, in, in a relational sense, that he actually relates to us. But that's not to say God is in everything like panentheism says. Okay? Uh, any comments from our theological students, Eric and Ryan? Okay. You're, I just want to make sure I'm agreeing with, in agreement. Uh, but if you study, yes. Well, it, it just said God is love, but his love is as narrow as the cross. Uh-huh. He, he, his love is not like God is love, God is love, God is love, so I can live whatever way I want to, and God's just going to have mercy on, on me. No, no, he doesn't do that. His love is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's, that's our point. And see, and that's where we are parting company with people that over, generally all versions of theological liberalism overemphasize imminence. And so they'll go out and say, well, God is in the daisies, and uh, God loves everybody, and, and, they, and, and that's what I learned when I was a youth in a liberal church. God is love, and God would never send anybody to hell. So what they're doing wrong is overemphasizing imminence by taking out this necessity of coming on his terms, like you were saying, brother, right? Because here, it doesn't say God is, is right here close to everybody, and it's all nice and warm and gushy. He's only close to the contrite, only to, to the repentant. Only the ones who come to him on his terms. So that's the relational imminence. And then we, we believe that God, we can draw near to God because of the blood of Jesus. But you don't want to draw near to God if he can not come through the blood. Why? Because he's holy. You don't go stumbling into the holiest place in the Old Testament tabernacle, do you? No. You don't come back out alive. So... You have to come on his terms. And his terms in the Old Covenant was all the sacrifices that in the Day of Atonement and so on. So that's a good passage to keep in mind. God is holy, but he also dwells with the contrite. Hallelujah.
<laughs> so there, a little, see, you come to church and you get a lesson in theology. No extra charge. <laughs> Same price as everything else. Okay. Uh, where's our mic? Okay. But you even simplify a little more that, uh, you know, you have to be, when you come to faith and you come to Christ, you only come through humility. You realize who you are and who God is. Yes. And therefore, you're sealed with the Spirit. So, um, yeah. The humble and contrite are the ones that realize that they need Christ. That's, that's it. They're, everybody's a sinner. Everybody in the world's a sinner. In Adam, all sin, says the First Corinthians 15. But there's two kinds of sinners. There's sinners that know they need a Savior and sinners that don't think God's so concerned about these things. Right? And the best kind to be is a sinner that knows you need a Savior. Amen. Okay, the next passage was 1 Corinthians 5, 2. I'll, uh, I'll start verse 1. Okay, please. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put, have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Yeah, so there was an earlier incident where they were refusing to do church discipline. And they were tolerating immorality, and that's the constant problem that Paul is having with the Corinthian church. And as I said last week, this may seem somewhat shocking, although the way things are going... Our society is getting more like the ancient world all the time. But you've got to remember that in Corinth, this wasn't even this wouldn't make anybody blush. Uh, fornication was part of their worship services in the pagan temples. And men were not faithful to their wives, and they weren't even expected to be in the pagan world of Asia Minor. And so in that situation comes the gospel, and Paul had to... And the early church is one of the first things they forbade in Acts 15. The Gentiles would have to abstain from idols and from fornication. And so Paul had to fight this battle so that the church would behave in a way that's necessary for anybody who names the name of the Lord. Okay, Hebrews 12:15 and 16. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Yes, Esau is given as a role model for what not to do. Okay, Esau sold his birthright, and he's called immoral or godless. And the one, the one word there means secular, secular. He was a secular person. And the reason Esau was secular was that he didn't think the covenant promises were worth having. It was a slap in the face of God. God promised, made promises to Abraham and Isaac. Esau knew those promises. He was of age. This was the central reality that gave this family its identity, the promise that God gave to Abraham and Isaac. And that promise was to be Esau's as well. And so the New Testament says that he despised the covenant promise of God and counted it as a secular or a worthless thing. And therefore, he was cast out and did not receive the promises, and they went to Jacob, and Jacob became the inheritor of the promises to Abraham and Isaac, and then again to Jacob. 
Now, the reason this is being, I did a whole DVD on this called The Selling of Our Evangelical Birthright, based on this one passage, is that this is exactly what we're doing when we sell out. When we know, we, in other words, we no longer want to preach the blood atonement because we don't want to offend people. We no longer want to draw near to God on his terms, but we want to use uh, spiritual formation, contemplative prayer, mysticism, things God did not ordain. So it's treating God as not holy. That's what it is. And it's very much what Esau did. It's saying to God, we don't really think you're holy, and we think that God is such that we can come to him any way we see fit. He is not going to tell us the terms of how we come to God. That's what that amounts to. And I, the people don't see that because they have this false idea, kind of a universalistic God is a nice guy, and why wouldn't he be open-minded? Why would God tell me that I can only come through this blood atonement? So that's what Esau serves as a warning to the church that there's, there's serious consequences. Now, in his case, it says he was unable to find repentance. He had, he had sorrow, but not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. He regretted that he lost the benefits. That's how I interpret Hebrews. He regretted that he lost the benefits because when he got his blessing, it was a curse. Uh, back row. Yeah, he got. He, remember Esau's blessing? You're going to be away from here, and it was a bunch of negative things. Yes, Keith? Wouldn't it be, if he would have wanted to truly repent, he would have had to come under Jacob's headship so that he could have actually come back into the family coming under the authority of Jacob, which would have been really weird, but he wouldn't do that. That was what he would refuse to do because he'd that, lost the blessing and Jacob was the figurehead yeah, or the holder of that. That's true. He became hostile to Jacob and, and his descendants became enemies of Jacob. Very astute reading. <laughs> that's our highest award in Sunday schools, astute reading commendation. Occupational. <laughs> astute reading. Um, yes, because now that, now that the promises are invested in Jacob, you can't get them any other way than to come and submit to Jacob. And Esau was too full of pride to do that. And he just uh, did not. Uh, Gretchen. Thank you. I just need you to repeat that distinction of two kinds of sinners. Sinners who... I'll, I'll just try to remember. I'll, 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 okay, here, here's what I said. What did you There's say? two kinds of sinners in the world. The, the kind that know they need a Savior and the kind that think they're okay the way they are. Okay. And the ones that know they need a Savior know that because the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, has convicted them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We okay. know that God's holy, and we need, to, God, we need an intermediary. We, can't, we don't want to go to... You don't want to go to court when you're guilty. Okay. <laughs> when I think of... How I left my husband, that was wrong. And we're legally divorced, but I can't, I can't go back to him without his cooperation, which he's not giving me. And that's just it. I understand. So I'm alone and abstinent, but I'm not waiting on his say-so. I'm waiting on the Lord's will. And I live now, this is a happy news. I live now like... Um, I've got all kinds of other service that I can do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we were talking about earlier. David had 
Sometimes whatever it was that happened before, now we're saved. Some of those things are still there, but we know we're saved. Yeah, it doesn't always go away. Verse 12, we've got to make progress. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be being known to you in the sight of God. In other words, the reconciliation, this was the topic of chapter 5, by being reconciled to the apostle, they're being reconciled to the apostle's teaching, and by being reconciled to the apostle's teaching, they're being reconciled to God who inspired that teaching. Okay? So by this process of Paul demanding that something be done about the offender and the offended, it wasn't just for the offender and the offended, but it's that the church itself might come to repentance and they might understand that Paul's earnestness, a term that's repeated from verse 11, use this for uh, twice here for emphasis, is that he really cared about their well-being, and they needed to know that, and they needed to see objectively the effects of reconciliation to God and reconciliation to the Paul in his authoritative apostolic teaching. And that's very, very important to keep in mind. Let me quote a couple scholars. Barrett, 380. I, I'm sorry to do this, but I... I know that we have different people. In Second Corinthians, when we interpret it, there's all of this background stuff always right behind the scenes that has to do with Paul and what he's been going through with these Christians. And without keeping that in front of us, then we can't interpret the passage. So I've gone back to it more than once, and I hope the redundancy doesn't bother you too badly. Here is some discussion of that. Many opinions have been expressed as to the identity of the wrongdoer and the nature of his act of injustice toward Paul. Most likely, in our view, is the suggestion that this event should be linked with a public disturbance during the second visit when Paul confronted those who had not relinquished their former sexual practices. By the way, that is um, mentioned in 2 Corinthians 12, 21 through 13, 2. And he's going to later say that he's going to come and deal again and deal with any of those who haven't repented. And he said, and every fact will be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. The two or three witnesses in the Bible when it comes to church discipline are there to confirm facts. And the New Testament asserts the same safeguard on this process that the Old Testament did. Okay? It was inadmissible to take the testimony of a single witness against another person, whether it be an elder or just anybody in the church. And it says in the Bible not to do that. The reason is that somebody with bad motives can lie about another person and drive them out of the church if they wanted to. Somebody with bad motives could destroy the reputation of an elder if we would listen to one person who might lie. So the point of the two or three witnesses is to confirm fact, what happened what didn't happen. Confirming facts that aren't publicly known require two or three witnesses. If it's a publicly known thing, as we talked about before, like somebody publishes an article, it's open for review. Okay? That's not, you don't need two or three witnesses to find out somebody actually said what they said in their published article. You've got a thousand witnesses or ten thousand witnesses or a million witnesses. Everybody that read it 
knows what the facts are. The issue is what's true and what's false. But in church discipline, this is about facts. Okay, and this is what's going on here. Uh, connected as those probably were with an ongoing temple attendance. So, again, the sins that were happening in Corinth were attending the temple and taking meals with the pagan idolaters that are offered to idols and participating with the pagans in immorality such as the pagans were wont to do in Asia Minor. Continuing my quote, the most consistent reconstruction of Paul's scattered remarks on the subject throughout 2 Corinthians is that this man publicly opposed and to some degree thwarted Paul's attempt at discipline during that fateful visit. While the man was not actively supported by a majority of the Corinthians, nonetheless he was not directly opposed by them or subject to any expression of displeasure on their part, nor least of all the congregational discipline appropriate to the circumstances. In effect, so long as the Corinthians failed to act, the man's continuing full participation in the life of their assembly stood as a symbol of the Corinthians' failure to acknowledge the leadership of Paul the Apostle. Paul's position, therefore, was rendered impossible. He had no option but to withdraw from Corinth, communicate to the Corinthians by the now-lost letter that a further visit to the city could not occur unless and until they demonstrated their loyalty to him by making appropriate Discipline and action against the man. I think that's a very good reconstruction, and I think the likely thing with this man, I don't think it's the same man mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. I think it's someone different. And, I, and my guess, and again, this is just a reconstruction from between the lines, is that this man was like some of the ones that are rebuked in the letters to the churches in Revelation, holding to the doctrine of Balaam, or saying to the Corinthians, Paul's being too strict. I think you're free to go to these temples. And so if a man like that was in the congregation and tolerated, you have two messages, and they're not compatible. And Paul said no to this. Now, that's Barrett's reconstruction. Uh, but whatever the case, we understand the importance of church discipline in being in obedience to the gospel. Now, I want to make one more point, because this has come up lately. We've had people who have gone to church leadership and asked that the gospel be preached and the word of God taught and that the truth of God be honored in the congregation. And they've been put under church discipline. Now, oftentimes, using as an example, we'll see the leadership. Look at what Paul does. And, and so they say, we're like Paul, and we're the ones who are going to discipline you, and therefore we're doing so. But what that is, is an attack against true apostolic authority. And what it shows is that we're on our way back to Rome. See, that was the whole issue in the Reformation. Rome claimed that just because they sat in the seat of Peter, they had a guy sitting in this seat. There's no seat of Peter, by the way. The whole thing's a myth. We, sit, we, we, we have the traditions, we have the seat of Peter, we speak for God, and we have the right to discipline you, not based on the authority of Scripture, but based on what we say. That's what Rome did, and Luther said, Scripture alone. And unless you can convince me with Scripture and sound reason, here I stand. You do not have the authority. Now we have evangelicals taking up the practice of Rome. 
And they're saying that when we sit in the seat of church authority, we sit above the Scripture. And we have the right to do church discipline based on our own ideas that we can't even defend from Scripture. That is a repudiation of the principle of sola scriptura. Right? And if, and if the, the most humble and ordinary saint comes to the elders with valid issues from Scripture that cannot be rebutted with sound biblical hermeneutics and implications and applications, and they're right and they can prove it, then they have to be heard. There's no ranking system for biblical authority. We're all under the same authority. And the elders don't have an exception. Now, the only exceptions would be things that are matters of Christian liberty that a group has to choose in order to function. All right? So we need to decide whether we're going to have this colored chair or we could have had a red one. I don't know if they had a red one. But okay. So if you have deacons and it's their job to decide on the color of the chairs and they're duly constituted and they made a decision, there's no church discipline issue over that. Just accept it. Okay? Right? Sit on the ugly chair and be happy. <laughs> so we were distinguishing between how groups make decisions on non-binding things and what's binding from Scripture. All right. Uh, Robert. I just wanted to maybe raise the same authority issue in a new context. There's this uh, false revival going on down in Lakeland, Florida, that's been getting a lot of news. Mm-hmm. And a big newscast this week was that Apostle Peter, C. Peter Wagner, Apostle Rick Joyner, uh, John Arnott from the Toronto Revival, and a couple other people went down there and commissioned this guy as a, an evangelist and endorsed his revival. So that's another concept of mm. very much going back to Rome. They're mm. claiming apostolic authority and claiming God's imprimatur of this is of God and this guy's a godly guy and therefore everybody should listen to him. Yeah, and it's not, a go- and it's not the gospel. And it's not the gospel. Yeah. It's not a godly yeah, guy. So the, he's not preaching the gospel. Exactly. And see, Peter Wagner is known for, in his one book I, that I quoted one time, he said, well, a lot of the churches had apostles for years, so it's about time we get them. So he's talking about Rome and thinking it's a good thing, so they've had their apostles. Why can't we have ours? Well, I say, no, they can't have theirs, and we can't have ours either. And theirs probably has a better tradition than Rick Joyner does. At least he's been doing it for longer. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't listen to anybody. Apostolic authority is invested in Scripture alone. Okay, The solas are important. One more uh, thing here about this, and I want to go to verse 13 uh, from uh, Garland. He is using a form of comparison that communicates his greater, this is about verse 12, his greater purpose was the ultimate good of the church. And he quotes another guy who, who quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's not that God does not want sacrifice, but that God particularly wants mercy. Paul did not want them, did want, did want them to discipline the wrongdoer, but he insisted, he wrote primarily to show them that they were indeed devoted to him. He wishes to make very clear that healing their strained relationship and restoring their friendship were utmost in his mind, their inaction in the face of the offender's defiance may have 
concealed temporarily their true loyalty to Paul. Paul's reprimand, therefore, was not aimed only at an individual, but the church, and it brought the reconciliation he was hoping for. So 2 Corinthians 7.13 says, For this reason we have been comforted. Another theme in 2 Corinthians, we saw it earlier in the epistle, when we were studying early on, the God of all comfort, Paul talks about. We've been comforted. This is in a perfect passive, in the... A perfect passive, which is probably a divine passive, so comforted by God. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Titus had a, a deep sense of relief when he was able to uh, convey to Paul their repentance. So this uh, refreshing is, is also an ongoing thing in the perfect tense, a sense of relief that God had reconciled the church to its apostolic founder. Possibly Titus was better received than Paul would have been. Paul didn't go. He sent Titus, and he got the desired result. (laughs) Maybe they just need to hear somebody else tell them the same thing. Sometimes it works that way. Some people get frustrated like that. (laughs) Dick Cuffles said that several times to me. Dick would be telling me, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And I, and I don't listen to him. Well, I listen, but I don't do it. <laughs> and then somebody else comes along, like Ryan. This happened with Ryan before, and said, you probably should do this. I go, that's a great idea. <laughs> and I go, do it. And Dick says, what? I told you that a long time ago. Why don't you listen to me? After I hear two or three, from two or three, the same thing, I think it must be, maybe you should listen to this. Well, I think it was about using an outline when I write. <laughs> Would you consider using an outline, he said. Uh, yeah, I saw the leaven of this movement, uh, third wave movement in a church a few years ago, and I confronted the pastor about it, and he didn't want to do anything. And now it's come to fruition, and all these false prophets and miracle people are coming to the church. So there's some others from this church that are going to TCF now that used to go to that church. We're going to confront him with the word. And, yeah. uh, and it, it, it's unbelievable. Uh, it, it, I don't even know how to characterize why all this is happening. But it's, it's, it's unbelievable. The people are coming in saying, we are the apostles of God, and we can say whatever we want to say, and we cannot be judged, and you must submit to us or God is mis- displeased with you, and we're going to just speak for God willy-nilly. And, and if somebody says, no, this is not biblical, then you're the bad person. Okay. And then pastors that are supposed to know better open the doors and say, come on in, wolves. We, we got some sheep here, and they'd be very tasty for you wolves. And I don't get it. I know, I know. And I know who you're talking about. I know the situation. And when I was in Bible college, in, 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 I'm not just anti-Pentecostal, by the way. I was in a Pentecostal Bible college that had godly people who loved Jesus Christ who preached the gospel. And, and they warned me against these people. They warned me. They, they said, Bob, there are no new revelations. That's what those godly men said. There are no apostles and prophets. And if they try to come around, they're not welcome here. So what happened between 72, 73, and 2008? And now the floodgates are open and the revivals are led by apostles and prophets. And the men that warned me and went to be with the Lord and their successors have no 
concern for the well-being of the flock of Jesus Christ. And they won't guard the flock. And that's sad. Well, they've gotten away from Scripture alone. Yeah. And uh, it's my hope, I think, this pastor is a Christian and he doesn't know everything about this movement. It's my hope that we can get through to him because he does have a zeal for the lost. His methods maybe aren't proper, what I would do, but um, that's the hope is that he could be brought back into restoration. Let's pray right now for that. Dear Lord, we pray for Troy and his friends that that know a pastor who is in need of being warned. May he open his heart to them and see the truth and go with Troy and the others that they may have words of wisdom that would be received by this person, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. The Bible says, He who turns the sinner from the air of his way saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. And so, thank God for people willing to do that. Now, here we see that uh, Titus had been someone who did that. Titus went and warned a church on behalf of Paul, and he had a great sense of relief. You know, it says in the Bible that the angels rejoice when a sinner repents. There's more joy in heaven when a, single, when a single sinner repents. And God is a merciful God, and he does desire mercy and not sacrifice, but the sacrifice is necessary in order to express the mercy. God's mercy is expressed through the sacrifice, but he delights in the mercy. The sacrifice was made, and Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the, and the, and the penalty was being paid, and the sacrifice was intense and agonizing. But the greater purpose is that God would show himself to be a merciful God, that we could come to him. I love the gospel. God bless you. (laughs) You know what? I I appreciate so many. uh, I I just love the congregation, and I want to say a thank you. I was out out to watch um, the, the ladies U.S. Open yesterday. And, and I, took, I took my daughter along because somebody from the church here gave me two tickets. And we were, we were sitting there, and I knew where I was going to go because there was this, on, on number three, there's this big elevated green, and if you hit the front of it, the ball rolls back down. It was kind of fun to watch these people hit these great shots, and the ball comes rolling up. <laughs> so it happened to me the one time I played the course. I thought it was only fair. It happens to the pros. And so I was sitting there, and here comes a couple from our church, and, he, and, he, and they stopped because we were in this rain delay early on. And, and the guy, who was fairly new to the church, says, Oh, I, I, uh, I was just out doing evangelism. Eric, he must have been out with you. Were you witnessing to an atheist? Yeah. yeah. So he's telling a story about him, Eric witnessing to, the, to an atheist and how and this one's doing evangelism, and he was all excited about it. And I thought, I, I just love this. We go out to see golf, and here they come by talking about the Lord and how they're sharing their gospel, the gospel and, and, and refuting the arguments of atheists. And God bless you. God bless you, Thank you Troy, and, and for, for what you're doing, and Robert, for what you do, and all of you. Thank you for this. I, I can't imagine how exciting it is to just think about the Lord using people to reach others that are lost. And, and, it's, and it's a valid thing also helping the, the saints see their way out of all the darkness that's in the church today. I mean, that's a very important ministry as well because people, there are people who truly are converted that have been slowly cooked in the, the frog water, you know, the old analogy. Maybe it's kind of tired, but I can't think of a better one. And so they've been sitting there, and I've, I've heard this many times. 
when somebody will bring a friend to church and we preach the gospel and they, and they come up and they say, oh, wow, that, it, 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 it's like something clicks from 30 years ago. And they've actually told me, I didn't know, but you know, this all went away and I don't know when and how. But now I know it went away and I don't know where it went. Well, it's the fruit of the seeker movement. A couple quick verses. We've got about two minutes. Robert, could you look up Romans 12, 15? Romans 12, 15. Yes. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on things, on high things, but associate with the humble. Do yeah. not be wise in your own opinion. Well, yeah, interesting uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. So in case there was a rejoicing because of repentance, they all, is there like the parable of the prodigal son? Remember what happened when the, when the man repented? He said, come and let's have a big party. And the older brother said, well, you didn't throw me a party. And I never even went out and squandered all your money. He didn't want to rejoice with those who rejoiced. But it's a precious thing when the Lord works repentance, and we should always rejoice in it. When I was at... Uh, a brand-new Christian. I, I was baptized in a little Pentecostal church town in Sheldon, Iowa. And they were having some sort of a meeting. And back in those days, they used altar calls. I think most people did. Uh, we don't believe that that's the best thing, but it, there's still God used it because the gospel was there. And so anyhow, the, 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 the preacher was preaching a convicting message about repentance. And... The organist was sitting there playing, and she was a young gal who grew up in the church. She's playing the organ. Well, who's going to come and repent? Who's going to come and repent? She's playing the organ. And pretty soon she realized it was her. <laughs> they kind of hide behind the organ, you know. And so she dropped the organ and ran down to the altar and started weeping and crying and repenting. Well, and then several people were there and then at the end of the meeting. But I saw something that just totally grieved my heart. One of the older people from that church that had known her from youth came up to her after she repented and gave her life to the Lord and started browbeating her about everything she'd ever done wrong. She said, no, I don't want to see any more of those kind of dresses that you've worn, and I don't want to see you doing this, and I don't want the music that you're listening to. She was just pounding on her. You have to quit this. You have to quit that. You have to quit everything else. And I, heard, and I was a brand-new Christian. I was going, oh, oh. This is terrible. That's, that's not rejoicing with those who rejoice. Kill the fat. But see, that's the older brother. That's the older brother said, no, don't give this guy a party. I want to see, you know, look what he did. He was just eating with pigs. We don't want to eat with him. That, that was sad. <laughs> so don't do that. If somebody repents, re, bring them in with open arms and uh, don't use that as occasion to get back at them about what you're mad about, about from the past. Okay, uh, this morning Ryan is preaching on 1 John chapter 2. This is it the one about little children and fathers? And Okay, all right, that'll be fun. And it's Comedian Sunday, so be thinking about that.